Alcoholic named Terry. My sobriety date is 4 June 1994. My home group is the Elgin Only Chance Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. It meets at 7 p.m. on Thursday night in Elgin, Oklahoma. I do have a secondary home away from home group. Uh, it's the Serenity Group. was my home group before I went to the Elgin Only Chance Group. And it meets Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at noon at St. John's Lutheran Church in Lawton, Oklahoma. I do have a sponsor. His name is Jim G. He has a sponsor. He's not sponsorless. And uh, I sponsor guys, and uh, I like to say this, I sponsor guys that sponsor guys. That's kind of cool. You know, that's a transition. Sometimes, you know, folks get in here and we start sponsoring somebody, and you never see anything go any deeper than um, maybe them not getting sober. So I'm up here to share a little bit about myself. I don't know if uh, you knew it or not. We lived here for four years before, and so we've been gone for almost five years now. And that's so weird how time flies. It just blows my mind. Everybody here looks older than they did except for Harold. <laughs> Harold looks exactly the same way he did when we arrived here in 2013. Hadn't changed at all. Um, I, it finally took, like I guess, about nine years before he got an injury. You know, so it's, uh, it's amazing to be here. And I just want to thank whoever it was that thought about bringing us over here. Um, I want to thank all the speakers before. They've been amazing. If we can give a round of applause for those other speakers. I mean, amazing. So this that I just did, uh, probably not going to happen after this speech goes forward, right? Um, but uh, So I, I'm supposed to talk a little bit about what it was like due to my alcoholism, um, what happened due to my alcoholism, and when we mean what happened, what happened that makes me do a transition from that old life into this new life, which is what it's like now due to Alcoholics Anonymous, the program. And I say that um, it's... Some stuff very near and dear to my heart. What, what uh, Bradley was talking about earlier, you know, all that, I kind of had to put that out um, of my mind. Because, you know, everybody pumps everybody up when they get up here. You're not going to say, yeah, this speaker, I heard their tape, and they were horrible. You're going to hear, you know, you're going to pump it up. Even if you didn't listen to the tape, you'll probably say that that was a good tape. You know, I didn't have time. I was shirking on my responsibilities as a host. You know, you're never going to say that. You'll say, oh, it was just amazing, greatest thing I could have ever, ever heard. And then when you don't hear that, you're like, well, I wonder what that host was doing or what they were thinking when they presented that. Did they listen to the tape? But uh, I am passionate. Um, I don't know how to differentiate these things. It depends on, the, on, on what I'm going through at that time. But um, I would say uh, God and my recovery come first. That may sound terrible to some of you. He said, you know, I put my family first. But I don't believe that's true. Because when I put God in my family, or God in my recovery first, what ends up happening is I have the ability to give my family something that they couldn't get. And, and I'll explain that in a little more detail a little later. Um, I've just taken on a new job. I, I'm retired military, so I hadn't worked for money in about 10 years. Um, well, I got a retirement check, but so I haven't worked where I'm, I was getting paid. So I'm, I'm in a new job right now. And the job kind of involves what I'm similar to what I'm doing right now, except I don't see anybody sleeping yet. Because in that job, I, I, honest with you, I look out there and I see folks just dozed off, knocked out. Sometimes half of who's out there is, you know, knocked out. So if you feel like you need to go to sleep, you are not going to offend me. You could go ahead and just lean your head on your shoulder. We could exercise that real quick if you want, you know, uh, and go ahead and take a nap. But it's, uh, honestly, I'm just glad you're here. Um, I was like that for years. And so I'm going to talk about 
where I came from. I'm not going to start the, the, the story in the birth canal, you know, uh, um, but I am going to tell you a little bit about my background. Uh, my dad's a retired Army officer, two, uh, two combat tours in Vietnam, infantry officer. Um, so you can kind of understand what displacement he's going to have when he gets back home from that kind of stuff. Not an alcoholic. Um, my my uh, mom is, a, uh, we call her the Cheyenne Princess, but she's a, she's a Native American. They grew up in Watonga, Oklahoma together. And in Watonga, Oklahoma, back in the 40s, you only had basically white people and natives. And you would think, oh, that's just fire and water or fire and vinegar or whatever it is, whatever it is uh, oil and vinegar, all this stuff that would not normally mix. And when you look back on those times, I see those pictures of them being in a unit together. They all got along. What did they have going on there that we don't have in our country right now? You know, so it, it, it makes me wonder, you know, that sometimes we'll take somebody else's stuff and adapt it when in reality we, we have ways of getting along all, all, all along anyway. So they got married. Uh, I have... Three older siblings. Um, I'm the youngest. My old, oldest brother's 12 years older than me. The next brother's 10 years older than me. My sister's eight years older than me. And so then there's me. And so I'm almost like an only child. And here's the thing. I remember my, uh, my dad being hard on, on them when it came to some things. But as I'm growing up and getting ready to start this career of alcoholism, I pretty much got to do whatever I wanted. And uh, I think that ties into a couple things. So... Um, let me give you a little base of foundation. So I'm half Cheyenne Indian. Um, um, there is some color in here. I think that was mentioned earlier. My wife is Mexican. You know, we got we 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 are people that normally would not mix, but we, you know, we we uh, we do it. You know, and uh, so a foundation. Here's this foundation. I look back, and I, I I had been saying my story for a while. Nine years old, but nine years old is kind of when I acknowledged it. Um, probably about four years old, I was sexually molested as a boy by another older boy and uh going back and the more i talk about it it's, it's like it's not something that, that there was a time where that would have never came out of my mouth but from that kind of bases my whole foundation of my sexuality later on in life um how i'm going to interact with people what i think of about sex and stuff like that so uh that happened in 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 and not once but there was a couple other incidents in there but when i was nine i actually acknowledged it and the way i acknowledged it i didn't I didn't share it with anybody, but what I did was I packaged that up and stuck it down deep in my gut, and I always say it's like right here, and so what I had, and I always related to a stone, so I have this, this black stone like onyx, and it's just buried in my soul right here. It's buried here, and it's never going to see the light of day, but there's a price to be paid to carry that thing around, and so I say that because uh, um, I studied, when I retired from the military, I, I studied to be a clinical mental health counselor and a marriage counselor. And uh, in, in doing all that, um, what I discovered, um, and doing that with AA work as well, what I discovered is, is almost everybody that you interact with when it comes to helping them with that has something in their past that's the, some type of a trauma point. Yeah, not everybody, but almost everybody. And then even some of those that you might not know that, that might be a hidden thing down in there. So anyway, so that was kind of my foundation. So from about nine, I knew there was something not right with me, and uh, my parents moved us to Oklahoma and uh and uh, my dad had a, a western auto franchise and uh but he also had this uh, uh uh religious beliefs that we attended church and he's got a we have the same thing today if you don't go to church you don't go to lunch right so that was the way it would be on Sunday and so uh a lot of times even when I was older and I'd come back I know I wanted that good lunch so I might not really want to go to church but I know that's part of the package to go so anyway uh, along the line I got certain spiritual beliefs 
and growing up, and, and, I, and I, I accepted their, their way to get my life right, but the thing that happened was I still didn't feel like my life was right. And so, there, so early on, there was always something, I knew something was wrong with me. And so going forward, uh, uh, I thought it was cool, too, we were Lutheran, so I thought it was cool because they would always smell like wine when they came back, you know. And so I don't know, maybe that was an early indicator, the direction that my life was going to go. And uh, so I drank probably about 10, 11, 12, but I didn't really drink where I had any effect. I drank because I thought it was cool. I'd watch those old uh, westerns, and in and, uh, and my image is of John Wayne, he always was already kind of in his older ages, but he always had this big hat on and this brown leather vest with this white shirt, and he always got him a glass of whiskey. So I was, that was my image is I, I want to get there where I'm going to get that glass of whiskey. I don't know what it does to you yet, but it's, you know, he's tough and he's got this, so... Um, Anyway, I was always the class clown too. I guess that was uh, one of my coping mechanisms. Is I would I would I would create comedy out of uh, uh, usually situations that weren't very comical, you know. And that's not always a good thing. But um, you guys want a little comedy right now? I can activate that. Let's activate that. Okay, so we are at an Al-Anon convention, so that would mean Edie's been up here doing her her Al-Anon humor. And so there's nothing better than oldies but goodies, right? So some Al-Anon jokes. Um, I don't know if it's been said this. I've been at every meeting, so I, I hope I didn't miss it because I did doze off a couple times myself. <laughs> but uh, why do Al-Anons close their eyes when they're having sex? <laughs> it's still the same lady with the polka-dotted shirt. <laughs> she could probably do a book. Because they don't like to see an alcoholic having a good time. <laughs> but that's old. I mean, really, it's, I mean, if you didn't get it, you know, you probably heard it before, put it away. Anyway, so uh, comedy would, would, would cover certain things. And I remember there was another incident when I was little. So I'm, I'm, I'm considered, I don't really, but I mean, today I, I say I'm a half-breed. Um, but in certain circles, that wasn't always a good thing. You know, and, and I remember we came back and we have the Concho Indian Reservation by, around there. And I was talking to somebody recently about this. Um, about uh, my dad taking up for me on this one instance. Uh, these older Indian boys took me and they threw me down and they had one of those water things that you had to handle. And they were pouring water all over me. I think I was like probably like five. And, uh, and he came up and snatched me up and knocked them out of the way. And just, you know, uh, that was that moment that I probably wanted that in my whole life. But, you know, uh, what I ended up growing up with was uh, when I was at the basketball game, I'd look up in the stands and nobody would be there. Right? Not bad parents. They weren't alcoholic. I just, I just, I, and you know what? They may have been there, but my memory doesn't show that they were there, you know. And uh, so that's kind. Of, and and he, he had a work ethic, and, and I'm not <clears throat> principles and ethics. I, I think it's one was uh, if you always work, you're going to be be able to take care of, you know. Don't ever let somebody. He he wouldn't take government assistance, and uh, so I I had that work ethic, but it really helped out when I, when I got into alcoholism because if you're always working, you can always buy your stuff, right? So uh, until you can't, and then I, you can live a life of crime. But uh, so when I was 15, um, living that life, hanging out with people, and, and I don't uh, cigarette smoke, and I don't really count that as part of my alcoholism story. But I was probably smoking cigarettes since I was probably 11 or 12 years old, right? So, but uh, so I'm 15, and I'm also a straight A student. Um, you don't have to tell me to do stuff; it just kind of happens. Um, but then I still go to the office on a regular basis, you know, and to the, to the staff, they're probably like, this doesn't even make any sense. You know, you're a straight-A student, come in there, you're still a class clown. Um, and in Oklahoma, they, they gave licks. I don't know if they still do that any, anywhere. Uh, but uh, anyway, so at 15, I ended up uh, going to this party, and there was somebody that wanted to beat me up. And I was a little guy at that time. I hadn't grown any. 
and uh, and we were at a keg party, and there was some beer going around, and so I uh, I got me I don't think it was a red solo cup, but that's the way I would remember it if you know, and uh, I drank that thing all the way down, and then got another one, and something happened. I did, I was no longer afraid, and that kind of evaporated i don't even think that situation transpired but what ended up happening was uh for the next two days i was with these three other guys and we we ended up traveling around different parts of uh, central oklahoma um we went to the town next and went to oklahoma city and we're about 40 miles from there anyway and for like a 48 hour period of time it was the most wonderful experience was going on in my life at that time and so uh when they finally got me back and, and i and i guess i blacked out because there's a portion of it i don't remember and so the following monday um, the guy that was driving us around, he came pulling up, and, and he, he made me clean out the back seat of the car where I'd vomited in the, in the floorboards. And I don't remember that. You know. And so the consequence of the fun that I had was cleaning somebody's floorboard mats out and stuff like that. This would be the equation. This would be that, the, the, the balancing act that will, will dictate everything in my drinking from here on. But it's skewed. Because my mind will skew this. The fun that I had is on this scale, and it was so good. Let's just lay that on the ground, this scale. I had to clean out the back of these floor mats. This is still far outweighs this. Years later, these consequences will be so terrible, and this will be like a short period of time of whatever fun it was, but my alcoholic mind will still make those scales go the same way. I am an alcoholic. So my alcoholism is a physical allergy of the body. Once it goes in, I don't know what's going to happen. 40 hour, 48 hours will elapse, and, and, I, and I don't know what happened at the end. And uh, I have a mental obsession. No matter how bad the consequences are, guess what? I want to go do it again. So that just, we could probably stop there. Um, but uh, anyway, I made it through high school. And there was one time when uh, and I had other things in my story. I'd smoke weed and do all the, uh, if you put it in front of me, I might do it. Um, which is was scary. At, at 17, I, w- I would come and go as I pleased. And uh, um, I remember one time I got sent to the office, and I was going to go get licks, and I just left school. Got in the car, drove off, and uh, came back the next day. They never missed me. So guess what? Anytime I'd get in trouble, as long as my grades were good, and my senior year I was actually in college classes in the afternoon, and I'd go in for two classes in the morning. you know. And I'm just like, uh, and I'm an alcoholic at that time. Uh, me uh didn't really get involved in social relationships unless they involved drinking. I had my buddy Mickey. He liked to drink. And so I wasn't really inclu- uh, tight with my, my Indian brethren, Native American, whatever you want to call it, the, the Cheyenne tribe out there, yet. So we graduated, and uh, this is the, uh, uh, I think the party was Friday. So Friday, and we're sitting around, and the keg's gone, and uh, it's just me. I look over here at my buddy Donnie, and he's from the tribe and uh, nobody else is there, so let's just continue drinking. So fast, fast forward to Sunday morning, um, I am actually borrowed my mom's car. I had an old 63 beat-up Ford pickup truck I drove around, but I borrowed my mom's car. And uh, on Sunday morning, she needs her car because they're going to church. But I'm not back on Sunday morning. And so I'm actually not awake. There's a, that's the window of the car. And I look over there, and it's a police officer. I look down, and the car's in drive, and I slip it into park because it's pushed up against the curb. I look over, and Donnie's still over there passed up. I look up, and on the dashboard, there's, I don't know where we bought the, the, the liquor bottles or something, because I didn't, I don't remember buying liquor bottles. With liquor bottles, we'd burn holes in the, in the, in the different carpet and the seat. Um, there's beer cans on the, across the dashboard, and I kind of fall out when the door opens, and I, and I puke on uh, officer's shoes. 
And, uh, and I look up, and, and it's Sunday morning, and all these people, we are actually pulled up to uh, the Methodist church front, and the people are walking by dressed, dressed like this, with their, with, like in shock, as they walk by and they see this kid throwing up. And, and I, I had a straight short hair back then and, and probably about a, a three-foot mullet out, out down the back, right? And so uh, I'm, I'm throwing up, and uh, my dad had owned a Western Auto franchise, and so the police, I'm, under seven, I'm 17, Donnie's 18, they just go ahead and pack him up and send him to jail. They call my dad. And when my dad arrives, he's dressed just like the other folks that were going to church that morning. And he has to come pick up his son who's been missing for 48 hours. You know, and, I, and I say that, so th- uh, going back and looking at some of this history, we have a 17-year-old son. We know where he's at right now. We actually, the technology really helps us out too. You know, <laughs> why were you speeding yesterday? Because <laughs> we can see how fast he's going and stuff like that. But the thing is, if he's an hour late, me and my wife are flipping out. Where the heck is he at? He knows he's supposed to be here. You know, we care about him enough where we care where he's at and stuff like that. But here I am. This is back in like uh, 80, 86. And they have, it's like, again, that's from my perspective, like they could care less. I'm gone for a couple of days. Nobody's looking for me, you know. And so uh, looking back at it, and I'm not saying that's what makes me an alcoholic. It's a, it's a good platform to go be an alcoholic, though. You can come and go, do what you want. Um, always have a job. If you always got a job, you always have a, the ability to, to buy what you need. So that's kind of the, my alcoholism in a nutshell. So uh, 17, so let's talk about some of the problems. At 15, there's a judge that says, you need to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know what was going on or what transpired to make that happen. Something must have gone wrong where they're going to direct me. So at 15 years old, I'm at the uh, El Reno, uh, worldwide famous El Reno group of Alcoholics Anonymous in El Reno, Oklahoma. And I'm going to my first meeting. And uh, today I still go back there sometimes to go to that meeting. I'll sit in that same place where, I, where I've sat and just think about, I was not ready. Because, you know, I'm going to tell you this. If you're an alcoholic and, 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 you're, and, you're, and you're supposed to get sober, you actually have to be ready. You can't just have had a couple drinks or have a couple bad experiences. If you have a couple bad experiences drinking and you stop drinking and never drink again, I don't think you're an alcoholic. What do they call New Year's Eve? They call it amateur night, right? Because guess what? Normal people will have DUIs when they drink too much. It doesn't make them an alcoholic. Now, uh, I will tell you this. There's no meter over the door, but, I, but more people... Well, most normal people don't frequent the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. What happens if they have that situation? They're aghast that they ever had to be there. They're so ashamed. You know. But what's really funny, though, is when you're a real alcoholic and then you pretend like you're all ashamed to be there, but you've been in worse situations than that before. You know, I've never been in county jail before. You know, looking around, make sure you don't recognize anybody in there that you're in there with before. You know, um, I've been arrested several times or released on my own. Um, so anyway, I started working in this uh, bingo hall, and uh, it was before we had all the casinos. And so the boss there already knew that if we got, uh, if I made too mon- much money in one night, he should not expect me at work the next day, right? And so it would be even worse if I paid out a big jackpot to somebody and they give me like a $500 tip. He couldn't expect me at work for the next couple days, right? And so I've been fired and rehired from that job several times, and that was kind of my life. It was just uh, I'd work to have this party and didn't go to college. I lived in uh, Norman for a little while. And I loved being on the campus of uh, Oklahoma University. Loved it. And for years, I lied to people. For years, I said, yeah, I went to OU for two years. <laughs> kind of true. 
I was not enrolled in any classes. But I'd hang out, go to different parties. I mean, it was, it was just a, it was an awesome lifestyle to be in, you know. And so just what a waste when I look back at that. But, you know, uh, I ended up uh, meeting a girl, um, not my wife now, so that means it's going to be a good juicy story coming up here pretty soon, right? Um, but uh, she got pregnant. And I was, I mean, I'm, I'm a drunk already. And on uh, the same day that I got married, I joined the Army. And I'd actually, I always say I was in a blackout, but I, I don't, I really, I, I must have been, because I really don't remember everything that happened in that period of time. I just remember I was married. And so, and also my Army recruiter, um, he ended up pulling police reports from different counties that I didn't, that I didn't live in. Because if you pulled up the ones where I had been at, you would obviously get police records back. And they can't do that today. Everything's networked. Right back then, you would call. They'd end up, I guess, uh, uh, copying something, you know. So he, I, I came in with a clean bill of health, you know, and, and I and I had to wait too on a urinalysis for a while. They had to target that thing just right, you know. But uh, joined the army, excelled doing all that stuff that they had through basic training and whatnot. Got this pregnant wife. Um, that I actually behaved myself. Something inside me said, I can't, when we have liberty, drink anything. Otherwise, I, so I'm already, some of that stuff they've told me at AA, and I'm a frequent visitor to AA when I'm in trouble, but it's not taking hold. And so uh, I come back from my advanced training early on a, well, I come back on a pass because uh, of a, a pregnancy that was in jeopardy. And so the, the, the baby's taking my, my oldest daughter, and uh, she's like six pounds, and this is an 89, and uh, I've, I'm in dress uniform, so at the airport I'm getting some drinks. You know, uh, I arrive drunk. I see her for like maybe 30 minutes. We got pictures. There's proof now. I look out there, and I just like I look at myself then. And uh, then I went and got drunk with my in-laws. So I had this four-day pass, and I spent maybe 30 minutes of it with the, with the kid, and then I got drunk the rest of the four-day pass. And, and they were congratulating me and stuff like that, and then I fly back. And, uh, and, I, and I didn't remember it until years later. She had uh, so it was such a high risk, she ended up getting a medevac to Oklahoma City Children's and stayed there for like a month, and I'm oblivious. You know, so it, it, when I'm back, I'm not drunk. I'm in training, but I'm, I'm, I'm oblivious to what's really going on. You know, so uh, anyway, join the, join the Army. We end up get, uh, getting a Fort Sill, and it's all about me. I, I claim they're, you know, supposed to go to Germany, and I, and I claim a hardship to get to Fort Sill. And so I learned something in the military is that if you come in and you really stand out, you can set yourself up for failure later, right? So you come in, and you do a really good inspection, and, and, I, and I came in there, and that started to be my MO. I come in and stand out because sooner or later I'm going to do the one thing. You know, the big book talks about it, that alcoholic who's staying dry for a period of time and all this other stuff is going on, and, and there's a very important event that has to happen or there's, there's a, a business deal that's got to come through that they will get tight at exactly the wrong spot and just pull it all down around them. And that started to be my MO, you know. And so uh, anyway, I, got, I, I, I was drunk one time, and I didn't show up for work, and, and, I, and I, I was a master manipulator. I would show up at a clinic and say I'd been there the whole time, and my first sergeant was there to meet me because he beat me to the clinic that I'd supposed to have already been at for two hours. So when I showed up, he's standing in the doorway, and I'm just like, I'm done. And uh, they were getting ready to bust me down and throw me out, and uh, this was in August of 91, and, and uh, Iraq invaded Kuwait, and everything changed. In a matter of about a week, uh, I was actually signed for everything in the unit because that unit 
you know, closed down and they plussed up the other unit next to it. And then I got a fresh start. And I was always, I never really understood that. There was a number of times where I got this fresh start and, and, and I didn't know that it was, I, I don't think I used it the way the fresh start was supposed to be used. You know, I'm supposed to go do something good with my life, but I'm going to go repeat this cycle. Desert Storm, didn't drink for six months. So I'm thinking that's me. There's also during that time, we had a religious group there, and, and they, had, they would have uh, church uh, by the howitzers. So you'd have, they, they'd have church at night, and they had a, a tent that the first sergeant let them have, and I refused to go in there because I also established a belief that, you know, although I did believe in God, I really didn't believe he had, a, had, he had the time for my stuff. That's what I believe. I had a belief, but I, I don't think I could, uh, I could uh, bother him the same way. So anyway, we come back from Desert Storm, and we were supposed to, uh, our commander at the battalion level had said this, all right? He had a real high, squeaky voice. Listen, men, we're in Germany. We've already, we're, we're heroes, right? So we're in Germany. Listen, men, the first one to get a DUI when we get back, I'm going to nail his nuts to the wall, right? So who's in the formation whose private parts are going to get nailed to the wall? <laughs> Don't know it at the time. So we get back, and, and I behave myself for a while. But, well, I do not behave myself. To the Army, it looks like I'm behaving myself. So I get back. I got this freedom. The same wife is pregnant again, right? And she's, she's high risk again, and you got this baby that's going to be on the way. And uh, I do not spend that liberty with her somehow i used to have this magnet that would just drag me right into the gutter the dirtiest part of the town and i'm hanging out with a stripper for about two weeks and it just and that doesn't that doesn't turn out well and uh i end up uh being awol for a couple of days and i go back and i got a new first sergeant and we're heroes and he's trying to cover it up and then this baby's going to be born and that's not a good dynamic to have been gone with a stripper while you're supposed to be over here and and i spend a little bit of time with the baby and i see i go get drunk again because they give me some more time off and so that's my mo on that so it's if there's going to be another kid it's not going to look good right and so uh anyway um, I'm out driving around during that time, and I get a DUI. And uh, military, they frown on that. And, uh, but I wasn't too close to the military base, so I'm thinking it didn't make it there. But I did, I, today I know better. I ended up getting this DUI, and I'm trying to not be careful about who I call because I don't want to trigger the unit knowing that I got this DUI. And uh, so Monday morning rolls around, and uh, two MPs are there to pick me up. I'm going to say, I guess they know that I got the DUI. And uh, I'm that first guy. And what happens is I made sergeant while I was over there in, uh, in Iraq and back in Kuwait. And uh, I quickly, freely gave that back. And so that is going to be another dynamic that will keep playing out. So uh, I actually, on the 6th of June, 1991, I didn't pick up a drink, and uh, I didn't drink for about a year and two weeks. And on the 6th of June, 1991, I was restricted to the barracks, and what I ended up doing was uh, I ended up going to a meeting every day at noon right there on post. And uh, I ended up doing this time where uh, I ended up getting busted down, and then I had to do this extra duty for 30 days in a row. 
And so I said I was going to AA because I wanted to go to AA. But what I discovered is if you go to AA when you're on restriction, you're allowed an hour to get there, an hour to get back, and you're at an hour-long meeting. What was really happening was I was getting out of that extra work for three hours a day. When I look back on it and honest. And so after my restriction was lifted and I was allowed to do what I wanted to do, um, that rest of that year, um, I attended probably four more AA meetings throughout that year. Um, and what ended up happening was uh, I was involved in the drug and alcohol program. You do meet once a week, mandatory. And, uh, and I, I got, somebody said earlier, so dryity. Um, it's not good to be dry. I would love to make these bumper stickers. There should be a bumper sticker that says, friends don't let friends dry drunk. You ever met a dry drunk? You almost want to give them something to drink. You know, and dry drunks, and that can happen to us. We can be sober for so long that we get jaded by long conversation, something in the meeting, and the next thing you know, I'm just miserable, and I don't want to be miserable. But I was a year and miserable, and I remember I was getting close to that year, and there was, a, there was a podium at a meeting I was going to, and so I went to this one probably about my six months. It was a meeting speaker. That way I don't have to share any of my emotions or anything like that. And uh, this guy got up, and there was a cake. Um, he introduced, uh, Bradley introduced me, and then this girl got up, and she told this story that went from darkest dark to the light standing in the sunlight. She had a year, and they gave her a chip, and guess what? I said, that can't happen for me. And just for something, I was kind of shut off to it. And so 7 June 1991, I got on a plane to go to Korea, and I made these promises to that, that wife and those two kids that I'm going to be different. I'm, I'm primed to go get drunk, though. I made it two weeks in Korea before I got drunk again. And that year in Korea, guess what? I went to more AA meetings that year in Korea than I did that year I was dry. And I couldn't get sober. I'd go to a meeting, and, and uh, I came out of a blackout one time, splashing water on my face. And I look over, and there's beads hanging uh, and and you ever, anybody have to do that where they're a detective? When you come to, you got to figure out, you feel like Philip Marlowe, you know, uh, whose arm is that? <laughs> Go look for your car, you know, check yourself out in the mirror. Oh, man, I got beat up last night. You know, uh, the, uh, so I'm doing my detective work, and I, I okay, we're off post. I'm not on, I'm not on the military installation. Um, I hear w uh, words I'm like, I'm, like I'm fading in, in, into life, and I hear these words coming from the, and, and they, the language they're talking about, one day at a time, you just keep coming. And I'm like, crap, I'm in an AA meeting. <laughs> in a blackout, somehow I'd managed to go to the Serenity Club in downtown Tongduchon, and now I've got to figure out if I've already shared. I don't know if I've, uh, <laughs> do I need to, did I pick up a chip, you know? And so uh, I go out there, and, you know, the chips are at the end, and I'm just like, man, my life's a mess. I need to, uh, you know. And so I started a habit of picking up white chips. And this would go on for nine years. I would come to AA, and I would, I, you, I would need you to solve my problem. But what I thought my problem was was my commander. I need you to solve my problem. I thought my problem was my relationship with, with, with my significant other. I thought my problem was I got this financial issue because, because of my drinking. Once that's settled, I no longer need AA. I didn't know what the real problem was. So for nine years, I came in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous. So anyway, finally, uh, 1994, on the 4th of June, uh, I come to again, and I'm hearing something fade in, and it's my daughter, who's five at the time, crying, coming down the hallway. I've, I've already moved into the barracks. My alcoholism is in full swing. I'm an all-star to my unit, but I'm a horrible, all that stuff Bradley said at the beginning, none of that was me. Wasn't a good husband, wasn't a good father. 
I'm coming to, my daughter had broken her arm in a sand pit at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and it looked like a, th- uh, a second elbow hanging there. I'd been out all night doing God knows what and had plans to go do it again the next day. Saturday, 4 June, 1994. What happens? My mind, something clicked inside my mind. And when I was in Korea, there was a guy there that was from a ranger unit, and they have this creed. It spells ranger. It says, recognize and I volunteer, acknowledging the chosen hazards of my profession. Um, ranger. Uh, ranger. And uh, never will I quit. You know, energetically I will face, you know, gee, gallantly I'll go into battle. But part of that says I will always be physically and mentally ready for anything that gets put in front of me. And I discovered on that day on the 4th of June, 1994, today we're in Kentucky. Somebody texted me earlier. They needed some help. And I said, okay. And I, and I did a couple of things, got a hold of somebody, and we provided help for them. One of, if our kids needed some help, we got six granddaughters now. If uh, one of them needs help, we can make something happen from, from Kentucky. Our daughters are in uh, Ardmore, Oklahoma. I'm part of the district, and that's one of our, our, our AA groups are in Ardmore. If they needed something, I could call a half dozen group members over there, and they could go do it. Today, sober, I can be anywhere in the world and can make some stuff happen. What I discovered that is I can be in the same room with my kid that needs me. And if I'm drunk, I'm worthless. I never knew that. Something clicked in my mind. We call it a moment of clarity. I had a moment of clarity. I had no idea what I was going to do, but I was not going back to Alcoholics Anonymous because I did not think it would work. And so I white-knuckled it. It was a Saturday. I made all the same promises. When we were at Fort Sill before, I'd come in, I'd cry around, I'd pick up a white chip, and I did steps one, half of one and nine. In the same night, I picked the white chip up. I'm committed to changing my life. I'm not going to drink anymore. And when I get home, the kids are already bed. I'm going to wake them up and promise them Santa Claus has come back to town. I'm going to do everything I can to make everything right in all the wrong ways. And what ends up happening is I'm terrorizing my family by doing that. I never did the second half of step one. There's a dash there. And that dash is called an M-dash, if you want to look it up. But that, that, that's the same dash as that is in, almost, is in every cemetery between two dates. And you can take that dash and you can call it this, for a lifetime. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol. For a lifetime that our lives have become unmanageable. When I finally put that in there, guess what? This program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm going to have to do it. How long? For a lifetime, one day at a time. So I didn't know that. I didn't know I was getting ready to get sober. So I'm not going to AA. What happens? I can't do this. Thursday rolls around. That was Saturday. I don't know how I made it to Thursday. And just uh, I ended up calling the hotline. It was, like a, it was like a scavenger hunt. I'm over here at these phone booths. Back when they had phone booths. I'm, uh, um, uh, they have phone books. Back when they had phone books. And I just remember something from those nine years in AA that said, Alcoholics Anonymous is in every telephone is in every yellow pages in the in, in the United States. I found Alcoholics Anonymous and the person was my lifeline. And they sent me to places that had closed down, you know, and, and uh, we need to do a better job of updating our stuff. This is the plug for that, right? So uh, and that's true. A lot of times uh, it's important. Today we're, we ha- I have this, you know, and this is a meeting finder, map, you know. It's so much easier today. But sometimes I think the work is necessary. I had to look and look, and finally I ended up at the VA hospital. I walked in, and I took in a, a big book and a 12 and 12 because I didn't want them to think I was new. 
They all have hospital bracelets on. They're in rehab. And I was a mess. Something that guy said, and that next Monday I ended up going to an AA meeting. I met my sponsor, Bill McShay. He's dead, passed on. He's a former Green Beret. He was part of, I guess, Delta when they first started. Um, spent six years in Vietnam. Who does that? Alcoholics do that if they're allowed to drink like they want to. And he tells you that. I could drink like I wanted to. I couldn't do the family stuff, but I could go do that, and I could drink like I wanted to. And I just met the most wonderful man. And what he did was he ended up taking me through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. In the book, so I have a book here, and I'll always come back to the, And this book, actually, I, when we moved from Kentucky back into Oklahoma, I don't know where we packed the book I had been using. So this is one of the ones, anytime I leave, I don't care if it's their tradition or not, I'll buy the big book, get everybody to sign it, because that's for me. I'm going to go through here, and I'll look at your names, and I'll be like, man, you know, this is uh, the Delta Group from Clean, Texas from 2006 to 2009. A lot of these folks aren't sober that signed it. Some of them are dead. But I didn't have a book, and I, and I do big book studies. And in less than five years, this book has fallen apart. And why is that? And the area that has fallen apart the most is the area that I take guys through the most, and then there's a spot where they, where they stop. My sponsor got me involved in the big book. We used Joe and Charlie as kind of our guides. And uh, step one, I didn't realize I was taking it, but this whole journey with God, I was like, well, I don't know, you know. So uh, my God thing here, what ends up happening for me is uh, I, I'm enrolled in summer school. Um, I reenlisted. I was swaying. I did just like when I joined the Army. I'm like, I'm like, somebody's holding me up, and somebody needed their numbers is what it was. We need one more person to reenlist. And there, oh, there he is. Let's go. Let's get him in here. So I reenlisted. I'm all swaying. I remember the lieutenant saying, "Are you sure he's all right?" And the and the and the, and the uh, career counselors, "Ah, he's fine. He's getting his numbers. He don't care." And uh, but you know what? You got the day off. So I was already primed. We're drinking, and then I get to go drink some more. And then I reenlisted for this summer program where you go go to college. And then uh, I had some background with some theology stuff, right? So uh, I, I remember Lou talking about being a minister. Um, I, I I thought about that for a little while until I fell in love with alcohol. But I had a little bit of background. And so they had this program, uh, that school, that, that summer they had uh, two uh, split semesters, and uh, I did Old Testament and New Testament, and it was only two hours a day, and you had the rest of the day off. And then after the first week, I, I discovered you didn't even have to be there for most of the classes as long as you got the little sheet. And I'm like, this is going to be the summer of my life. I'm going to drink like I want to drink and do what I want to do. And little did I know, on that 4th of June, 1994, after the third week in that class, I was going to be getting sober. I had no idea. And God had planned for me to go to as many meetings as I can, not have to worry about the Army. And what ended up happening was I was also getting this foundation of stuff that the, the first people in AA, what did they use? Well, you know, uh, Bill and Dr. Bob, they used another book to, to develop this program. And here I am, I'm studying that stuff at the same time that I'm getting sober. And so, but I still had this problem with God. And so my sponsor, he said, uh, hey, how are you doing? On, uh, well, I said, well, I was a little squirrely last week. And he said, well, uh, well I think it was uh, no, a Saturday night meeting. Um, well, I was like, well, you know, I, I, I don't have a ride to get to school. I had been borrowing somebody else's car, and, uh, and he went to California, and I couldn't use his car anymore. And he said, have you prayed about it? And I looked at him all crazy. You know, I'm like, uh, I'm talking about a real problem. <laughs> well, I understand we come in here. We pray at the beginning. We pray at the end. That's kind of the formality. And uh, he said, well, he said, well, why don't you get on your knees uh, when you go to bed that night and, and pray about it? And, but he also gave me a solution. He said, if, if you don't have 
a solution by Monday morning. Get a cab, and I'll come pick you up when your school's over, then I'll take you to the noon meeting. So I kind of had a solution already. But something happened. That Sunday night I got on my knees, and I said, you know, I did the stuff they were training me to do. I, I wasn't sold yet, but I had nowhere else to go. I need a ride. <laughs> All right, thanks. <laughs> Amen. You know, I climbed in bed. And then I'd crawl out. I was told to throw my boots under the bed, so I'd be on my knees on that morning devotion. But, so at midnight, there's a, there's a knock on the door, and uh, it's a PFC. I'm a sergeant, and he says, uh, my last name is Sykes. Sergeant Sykes, uh, my father got sick. I'm going on 30 days leave. Can you watch my Jeep for me? And he just bought a brand new Jeep. And I'm like, okay. And he said, uh, there's a cab waiting on me to take me to the airport. So I didn't even have to take him to the airport. He said, he said, you can drive it. He said, I know you're going to school. PFC from the mortar section two months earlier sees Sergeant Sykes naked on the pool table. If I see somebody naked on a pool table, two months later, I'm not giving them the keys to my car. How does that work out? Who orchestrates that? So the next morning, I'm pulling out, and I'm just like, this is amazing. You know, I'm, and, and soldiers abandon their vehicles. That's what happens. They abandon their vehicles because uh, it's too, I mean, to all the paperwork, but they, hey, you got to go, you know, so they... So all of our posts, any military installations, there's abandoned vehicles. So I'm backing out, and there's a 1977 Ford LTD, kind of a cream color with an orange vinyl top on it, has the fake vinyl tire thing on the trunk, cattails growing through the wheel wells, blown out tires. There's a bumper sticker on the back of that. It says, sometimes you got to believe before you can see. And my mind is just blown. I go to school, it's 1994, I don't have a smartphone that has a 64 megapixel camera, I have the little cardboard ones that you click, right, so I have to go get one of those, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to document what I witnessed. The car had been towed away, and for the next several weeks I went around to the different lots that they possibly could go to looking for this car, and you know what, who was the bumper sticker for, why had that car been there that long, I can... If you see something like that, you can own it. I needed that. Within a short period of time, I'm, I'm on the third floor of that military barracks with a, another cr crazy dude that I never thought was sober, the way he acted, and we're holding hands on our knees in his barracks room, reciting the third step prayer together. The book says that I may have had some type of a experience from that, but it could have little permanent effect unless it's followed at once by a course of vigorous action. And it sets the stage for me to take a look at myself and find out what my real problem is. Before it gets to that third step prayer, there's on page 60 it says, Being convinced we're at step three. But on 63 it says, We are now at step three. What happens between being convinced? There's three pages that 64 times they have a variation of a four-letter word that tells me what my real problem is. That word is self. I did a four-step, 95%, 
5% was not going to put, I'm not going to tell you about me being molested or some of the other sexual things in my life not happening. And I got tricked into going to a retreat in Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And everybody there on that weekend talked about how they did a fist step and it changed their life. And if you go to a barbershop, you're going to get a haircut. And this barbershop was not one of those ones where you're going to get drunk. This is one of the ones where everybody had a fist step story. And I'm like, you can't make this stuff up. And that um, Saturday night on the 6th of September, 1994, I stepped into this little RV that looked like a meeting house, all the stuff on it, and shared everything that I had in my life that was plaguing me in the, or, in the, in the order that it says to do it. I did the columns. And I, we went in. It was as if I stepped off the earth into that RV, and when I stepped back out, I was not stepping back onto the same place that I came from. I had a stone in my gut since I was nine. Dominated me. Fifth step. I have not had the compulsion or obsession to drink alcohol or use other mind-altering chemicals since that day. That craving, that's a physical craving. That means something's already in my body. I've already been removed 90 days from all that. What stops this? On that day, it stopped. I've thought about drinking, not a compulsion or a craving. I've thought about suicide. That's something else too, but not a compulsion or craving for drugs or alcohol. That stone was removed. It's never been back. Not that I haven't been afraid. I've, I've been in Iraq. I've watched people die. We're over there. We're picking up bodies. You go to the, to the, the, the cache. You see people that are blown up. You're get, receiving stuff blowing you up. And I had the ability to, to do this program. And, and it's, I mean, just unbelievable. I waited an hour, did step six and seven like the book tells me to do. Um, I ended up working on my amends list. I started making, and here's the thing. In the fifth step, it says, there's a set of promises. It says, we may have had certain spiritual beliefs before, but now we begin to have a spiritual experience, and it was happening. Those nine-step promises are awesome, but you know what? The, the feeling of freedom I got out of the fifth step was so unbelievable that it makes me motivated to continue doing these. What ended up happening was I know today that that feeling of freedom is only short-lived. Step nine is where we get set free. It says you're going to get a new freedom, a new happiness, not something that I had before. Fear of people and economic insecurity is going to leave you. Why? Because guess what? Those are the people I owed money to. That's why I'm not scared anymore. We're rectifying all that. Step 10 from pages 84 on, or yeah, 84 on, step 10. I have a four-step process to do all the steps in my life daily. When uh, I continue to watch out for fear, dishonesty, resentment, and uh, selfishness, and then I add in inconsideration, because inconsideration is my biggest bulb on top of my chief of character defects. That means I didn't consider you. So today, what do I do to combat that? I try to consider the individual. So in that, it says when, when these crop up, four-step process, we ask God to remove them at once. Discuss it with somebody immediately. That's usually my sponsor. Make amends quickly if I've harmed anybody. Turn my thoughts resolutely to somebody that I could help. And then I start doing this thing. This thing starts becoming alive for me. And I believe the, the book of Alcoholics Anonymous is, is set up in a certain way. And the way it's set up is uh, uh, the order that I need to do this in. You know, you get folks. I sponsor guys. And what blows my mind is 
um, after they've been clean for a little while. Uh, man, they get this really good job, and guess what? That job is so good that it takes them away from Alcoholics Anonymous, and they end up losing that job anyway, and it just starts a cycle. I had one guy sponsor, oh, I'm getting triple time. Yeah, but you're never around. So the book tells me that I can balance my AA life with family life and other stuff, but it, do, it doesn't tell me to do that until page 127. That means I'm doing the steps in the process. All right, I, I, uh, the next chapter is working with others. So uh, I failed with several guys. Man, these guys aren't getting sober. And my sponsor's like, you're staying sober. And then when they do start getting sober, it's a miracle. When you take somebody through a fifth step, in the 12 and 12, it says the, the fifth step is, is the beginning of uh, there's no more you, a sense of belonging. Until you've told your story to somebody else and heard somebody do the same thing back to you, you will still never have completed that circle. For me to do 12 steps, I have to complete that circle. So what ends up happening? I end up uh, getting orders to go to Germany. And I go over there, and it's all not the way I wanted it. And I end up going in, and there's two old men in the basement of this uh, little building over there. And I'm like, ah, I've just come to hell. You know, and just uh, I go in there, and I call my sponsor. I was like, oh, it's terrible. It's horrible. They're doing it wrong. He's like, they're doing it wrong. He said, what? He said, are they drinking? I was like, they're not drinking. He's like, find out how they're not drinking. I moved 11 times because of military duty in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've had 11 sponsors. Anytime I get somewhere, what I do is I quickly, today I recon ahead. You can get, we got the phone. I can find out, okay, where are we uh, meeting? Yeah, let's check it and see if the meeting's open. Um, and within about a week or two, I have a sponsor. I don't do well without adult supervision. 72-hour shelf life. That's what I got, man. That's it. When, uh, Lou was talking about the herd. Here's my herd. I'm a zebra. I don't know if you guys have heard this before. There's a guy, Daryl in Oklahoma, talks about that. I'm a zebra. And this zebra, what I need, uh, well, I think I'm running with the stallions. I have no idea that I'm a zebra. <laughs> Something's not right. And I keep making a mess of my life. Here's what happens is I come in Alcoholics Anonymous. I had nine years in and out of AA, but my mind was not ready yet. Because I still felt judged. I always, cops, judges, commanders, Significant others always told me what was wrong with me. And I knew something was wrong with me. That's the last thing I need is one more person tell me something's wrong with me. But when I finally was ready, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, you did not tell me what was wrong with me. You told me what was wrong with you. And it fit. I finally looked around and it was a room full of zebras. So you got to stick with the herd. A fully healthy zebra still gets eaten when it's by itself. So what do I got to do? So, man, just the journey of Alcoholics Anonymous is amazing. Um, le- left from Germany, I ended up going to uh, uh, school for uh, a whole summer in, uh, in, in uh, Fort Leonard, Missouri. I uh, had a sponsor there. Love that man. Crocker, Missouri, if you're ever there on Friday night, 7 o'clock, they have an amazing meeting in there. And uh, what happened is this ends up being the trend. If I, if I, if I look for it before I get there, guess what? Um, it's going to work out. And so uh, we ended up in uh, Fort, oh, I met my wife. I'm not allowed to say any of that because she's uh, going to tell her story. She said, I can't tell her jokes, and I can't tell her story. She's now and on. She's telling me what to do, right? <laughs> so she'll tell you that part, I hope. But uh, I met my wife, um, something different. Um, uh, I had still, even sober, sober several years, uh, I ended up still looking for party girls. 
And then I'd be brokenhearted when the party girl still wanted to continue partying, and I expected her to enjoy my AA way of life. You know, and so uh, anyway, so we got to Fort Hood, Texas, and, and, and ended up deploying. And uh, there's, uh, in the book, there's a section called the Pioneers of AA. And so when I was doing the, uh, the research for that AA up there, we were in Mosul, and, and there was no AA, and that unit didn't have any. And I'm like, man, this is it. <laughs> Fifth edition coming up. Pioneer, right? And so I got me an AA starter kit, and I'm ready to go and do my thing there. And uh, it's like a maze anytime you get on one of those places that's deployed. And um, we put everybody, and now and I, the guy that was getting kicked out of the Army, now I'm the, the, the first sergeant of a unit, second, second unit. I think he trusted me twice, man, unbelievable. So anyway, so we put everybody down to bed, and I go out there, and I'm going to go find the chapel. And so I turn around the T-wall, I come up, and I, they get the schedule up there Tuesday night. Brand new AA meeting. I'm like, what? My buddy Jonathan, who deployed three weeks earlier from Fort Hood, wasn't supposed to go up north. He was supposed to go somewhere else. But he got there, and he started that AA meeting three, meetings before, three weeks before I got there. And I still resent him today. <laughs> uh, we ended up going to Maryland and just... Uh, I retired from the military. Uh, one of my amends was uh, the military. I thought I'd done enough damage, and um, I was just going to go ahead and get out. And my sponsor said, oh, I, don't, I don't think that. That's why you need a sponsor. So 19 years later, I got to retire from the military. I ended up, uh, um, we're trying to decide what to do. I have a background in some, some chemical and cleanup chemicals and stuff like that. And so I was going to go work in Philadelphia to... Uh, uh, a state bureau of investigation on some of these hazmat teams and stuff like that and uh, that was a, like a kind of a dream and something changed inside of me we had some marriage issues and we got some marriage counseling we we were deployed i spent 16 months in iraq she spent nine months in uh, afghanistan and we had 24 months apart and so we were fractured when we got back together and so um, out of that we had such success with marriage counseling and getting plugged into a church that uh, things started happening in our lives and uh our son as a result of uh, making a decision to go ahead and retire instead of just chasing that military dream, um, he ran a race this morning over there in uh, Edmond. Um, last year he was the 20, number 21 in the state of Oklahoma for his cross country on where he's at. And uh, this is probably one of the rare times that one of us has not been there. Things started changing. Um, I didn't take that job. I ended up going to uh, become a counselor, a marriage counselor primary, primarily. And uh, what ended up happening was uh, uh, we ended up here, and I actually worked at Agape Counseling Center for a couple of years. Harold, that got me the job. I came pulled up for the interview, and I seen him leaving. And so uh, when I went in, she's like, oh, so glad to have you here. Fill out this paperwork. I didn't even do an interview. Harold, if you ever need to get a job here in Bowling Green, Kentucky, get Harold to go in there before you, and he'll get the job for you. So, we left here. Uh, my father had gotten sick. My wife was in Kuwait. And uh, actually, uh, uh, she pulled some strings. We got to Oklahoma. I never planned on ever going back to Oklahoma again. Uh, my dad passed away in December. And we had such good relationships here. Um, when I first got here to Bowling Green, there was one guy. Uh, um, we just got along. And it wasn't one of these things where uh, it's a sponsor-sponsee relationship. I got to finally just have a friend. And uh, it was Bo, um, James Ward. And uh, my father passed away. We were in Oklahoma, and, and when we were there, my sponsor from Germany was there, and Bo and Leanne showed up. 
Did not know that a few years later I'd get to reciprocate that back. Um, I got to give his eulogy. Four years. It's like we've been together a lifetime. You know, and it's, uh, that's what AA can do. AA gives you a family where you don't have a family. Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon. Our Al-Anon family is just amazing. It's just, uh, Friday nights was always, uh, uh, we're not a clique, because cliques exclude people. They have a clique on Friday nights that they used to, we used to all go out to eat food together. And anybody's welcome. So fast forward, we did what we always did. We, I got a, a home group there. Uh, I actually just relinquished a job as a DCM for the last four years. I'm still the Bridge the Gap chair for the state of or for the southwestern Oklahoma region. And Bridge the Gap is if you're getting out of prison or you're getting out of a treatment center, we provide that first AA contact to get you to an AA meeting. Because most people, if they go to AA, as soon as they get out, they have a higher chance of staying around. Um, most people, when they don't go to AA, as soon as they get out, guess what? They have a higher chance of going back and doing what they're doing. And so uh, doing that service work, we also plugged in. We're doing some service work in a church. And, and uh, really wild, four months ago, um, the new job I was telling you about, I'm a, I'm a pastor of a church, not just the guys, just one of the preachers. They actually gave me the whole church. I have other people that, that are that, – and it blows my mind. Um, out of AA service, I uh, visited a girl with cancer the other day, and just uh, that visit was not difficult for me because Alcoholics Anonymous taught me how to go visit folks that were in bad situations. Alcoholics Anonymous taught me how to go into a prison and talk to somebody that's in a prison. Alcoholics Anonymous taught me how to go into a rehabilitation center. Alcoholics Anonymous taught me how to welcome anybody. And I think that's the way we're supposed to be. So I have some work to do because I would like to make that like this. I've seen the grace of God more evenly distributed in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon, NA, any of those 12-step programs, more evenly distributed than any church I've ever been in. We get it. And it's amazing. Anyway, I, I think I'm out of stuff. <laughs> Should I do another joke? <laughs> At the Al-Anon's expense? Oh, one thing. Uh, Cindy, Cindy's my sister right there. Um, uh, she's not really my sister. But she is. Um, Cindy's uh, my wife's Al-Anon sponsor, and uh, we had an opportunity. My wife was in Turkey last year, and I went the first time for a couple months, and Cindy had the opportunity. And so uh, I told Leanne for four years that she was my Al-Anon sponsor, and every time I told her that, she's like, I'm not your sponsor. <laughs> I said, but you're my Al-Anon sponsor. She's like, I'm not your sponsor. And so uh, Cindy's more willing. And... Uh, <laughs> So we went, to, uh, we went to go see my wife in Turkey for a month, and Cindy flew with me, and on a 13-hour trip, I did my fist step with her, and uh, my Al-Anon fist step, and I didn't realize that she was knocked out the whole time anyway, so it was, it's been great being here. Um, I just cannot say what Alcoholics Anonymous, well, I just did. I guess I said what Alcoholics Anonymous has done, but it's, uh, um, there's a story in the big book called He Sold Himself Short. And that kind of, the title just says it all. Um, there's another story in there called Crossing the River of Denial. And in that story, what the lady says is this. You people. I'm no, it's no longer you people. Back then it was. Today it's we. But she says this. You people told me that if I put AA and God first, everything that comes next in my life will be first class. I finally got my priorities straight. Thank you. <laughs>